Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Yana Byers, and I'm here today with Ruth Mazo Karras, the lucky professor of history at Trinity College Dublin, to talk about her new book, Thou Art the Man, The Masculinity of David in the Christian and Jewish Middle Ages, out this year, 2021, with the University of Pennsylvania Press. Hello, Ruth, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, Jana. Thank you for having me. Oh, how's your day going? Um, just fine, as we were... Uh, <laughs> As we were chatting beforehand about uh, how lovely the weather is here in Dublin right now, so I'm I'm sorry I'm not outside in it. I will soon, just a, you know, within an hour, <laughs> I'll be back outside. How is Dublin? Do you enjoy living in Dublin? I do. Uh, I've been here for three years. I haven't had the full advantage of the three years because one year of it was you know spent. <laughs> kind of not doing anything. Although mm-hmm. I have to say, I can't think of a very much nicer place to have spent um, lockdown because I live right near the sea and I live right near a park where I can take my dog every day. So uh, so it's really a beautiful place to be even if you don't have access to all the, uh, to all the amenities of Dublin. Sure. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, I locked down in a, a winter uh, in Minnesota sounds pretty tough. So I think that would have been a good idea. Okay. So a brief look at your CV helps to put this book in context. Obviously, you've written about sexuality, common women, uh, prostitution and sexuality in medieval England. That was Oxford 1996. Um, <clears throat> sexuality in medieval Europe. Now in its third edition. Congratulations. Working, uh, working on the fourth. Ooh, Excellent. Okay, uh, out with Rut- Rutledge again, of course. Yes, yeah. and this this time it will be with a co-author because I decided I'm sort of tired of doing the additions, so we're going to do this one together, and then she'll um, she'll take over in future. Her name's Catherine Pierpont. Oh, fabulous! She was yeah, a graduate student at Minnesota. Yeah, that's right. Wonderful. Okay. Um, 
Oh, what fun. Okay. And then, uh, and also, and unmarriages as well, women, men, and sexual unions in medieval Europe. That's Penn 2012. And indeed about masculinity with From Boys to Men, Formations of Masculinity in Late Medieval Europe, which is Penn 2003. So in some ways, this absolutely right in your wheelhouse, kind of a good, no surprise that you're working here. But I'm interested in what made you decide to revisit masculinity. What, what, how, did, how did you come to write this book? Well, those are two different questions. So okay. I, I knew I I knew I wanted to revisit masculinity because I felt like there were things that I hadn't dealt with in the From Boys to Men book. And that was the first monograph in the field of uh, masculinity within medieval history. And a lot more had been published since. And, you know, the field had really developed and I felt like... Uh, I could have done things differently and there were there were more things to explore that I hadn't really thought about in the book. And so I decided that the thing that I wanted to talk about was male friendships. I was going to write a book on male friendships. And uh, one of the things that I think was missing in my previous work uh, was anything outside of Christian Europe. Uh, I, I had tried to do some comparative material in unmarriages, but it wasn't that much. I decided this project was going to be comparative between um, Christian and Jewish masculinity. Uh, and I leave out the Islamic world only because I don't have those um, linguistic skills. And I had been working on my Hebrew for some years. If I started Arabic, it would be from scratch. And I feel like I'm kind of late in my career to do that. Uh, so I was. this was going to be a project on uh, male friendship in a comparative context. And uh, I wrote a fellowship proposal. I went to the CAT Center at uh, the University of Pennsylvania in 2012 to to work on this project. And I, I thought, well, where am I going to start uh, on male friendship? And I thought, well, I'll start with David and Jonathan, who are always held up as this big example of uh, male friendship in the Middle Ages. And so I started doing my research on David and Jonathan, and it was very interesting. But I quickly came to realize that David and Jonathan are kind of important today in that um, uh, gay and lesbian Christians and Jews uh, look for a biblical model for same-sex love, and this is where they find it. And so you see David and Jonathan being invoked in same-sex marriage ceremonies and all over the place, uh, invoked in... Um, in the Knesset when they had a vote about whether to uh, allow uh, gay and lesbian people in the military, King David and his love for Jonathan were invoked as president. I mean, it's, it's, it's important. Okay. It's important to modern people. It wasn't nearly as important to medieval people. I mean, it's mm -hmm. there, it's there in the sources. It's very interesting, but King David was important in the Middle Ages in so many other ways, and his relationship with Jonathan was only one small corner of it. So pretty quickly, um, this research project sort of decided that it didn't want to be 
uh, a project about male friendships. It wanted to be a project about uh, King David. All right. That's funny how you, that you said that because they do take on a life of their own, right? You start a yes. thing and it, it, the book tells you what it wants to do. Well, that's right. I mean, you or you can you can stick with your uh, with your original project and save the other bit for uh, for a later project. But if you're doing if you're writing a thesis and you have a limited amount of time to do it, it may be easier to stick with what you started with. But I was fortunate enough to have the luxury. You know, I wasn't under a deadline for for the particular project, so I could sort of take it where it seemed like it wanted to go. That's wonderful. Um, so, uh, I mean, you, you open, uh, you open the introduction with the question, how do we approach the study of masculinity in the past? Which is a very good question. Um, and I want to ask, like, so I want to talk to you about your sources here in a minute, but I want you, I would like to hear you comment on the idea of doing history, a history of gender and sexuality kind of writ large. And what that means, you know, it's been suggested that the material just isn't there, that th- that you can't really write a good history of sexuality. And I, I don't believe that. And I'm sure you don't either. But I'd like to hear you comment on how you get at something that is intimate and personal and embodied and all of these things as an historian when you're talking about, you know, the span of 900 years or something. Well, yes, of course, as you know. It's a lot more difficult in a period where there's not there's not as much life writing. There's not as many people writing about their self, and when they are, they are not writing in an intimate way. You know, they're writing very much for a wide audience and presenting a certain image of themselves. So you can't you can't get at subjectivity in the way that you might be able to do for people in a more modern era. And a lot of people once took that as there was no subjectivity in the Middle Ages. And I don't think that's right. I mean, the fact that we don't have sources for something uh, doesn't mean that it didn't exist, especially when we have a pretty good understanding of why it might not have existed. So what we have to work with then are either uh, some documents of practice, court records, and things like that, uh, where because the um, institutions clearly defined what sexuality was uh, was licit and what was illicit, we have court records from both um, ecclesiastical church records and records of uh, local juridical authorities uh, punishing or not punishing people for various kinds of sexual activity and also for non-sexual activity that uh, that uh, can uh, go outside of boundaries of what's normally acceptable for uh, gender roles. So these are, in a sense, hostile sources. People people are being condemned, and their actions and their words are being framed in a way to fit either the case that someone is making against them or the case that they are making for themselves. So it's they're not to be taken as record of what actually happened, but 
neither is life writing to be taken as a as evidence of what actually happened. Um, it's what it's the stories people told about what actually happened. So that's one that's one kind of evidence. Now I didn't have that for uh, King David. Uh, this was not. Um, I was dealing more with kind of prescriptive sources and especially with narrative. And I think you can get you can get a lot out of what stories people told and how they told them and retold them. And in a sense, I mean, it's been said, I'm not sure by whom, that all of medieval literature is fanfic. And certainly the stories of King David are fanfic. I mean, that's what interests me actually about uh, this this whole project and this whole methodology is to take one body of narrative and see how it then is used in different societies and across time and across genres because it's done uh, differently in sort of retellings of the Bible and then in the liturgy, the way David is used in prayer, in visual arts, uh, you know, ac- across a really wide range of sources. But I think the way the way people told stories tells you a huge amount about uh, societal expectations and understandings of gender. Uh, it doesn't tell you how people actually behaved. I mean, reading literature uh, or uh, reading biblical exegesis, so on, is not. Uh, some historians have used the metaphor of a mirror. You know, literature holds up a mirror to society, and that's just not true at all. Uh, you you can't you can't use literature as a reflection of what people were actually doing. It's more the case, I think that literature influenced what people were doing. Um, You know, people, uh, it helped to define their horizon of expectation. And of course, different kinds of literature have different audiences. Uh, For this book, I was particularly interested in um, things that would have been preached or taught to everyone. I don't have... uh, fanfic written by Bodo the peasant saying, you know, here's what I think about King David, but I do have what was taught in churches uh, to Bodo the peasant and, and millions of counterparts uh, about certain Bible stories. Right. I mean, cause you have this, there's this body of material exegesis where experts are talking to each other, you know, and on this level, and that's helpful. But literature is really what is going to be kind of the take home message. Art, the uh, you know, this is this is this is what's going to be acceptable to Bodo, accessible by Bodo, um, and you use kind of a variety there. Well, so I mean, so then kind of the question too is why why focus this on David? Who is this King David guy, and why is he such a good place to think about masculinity? Well, David is very important in biblical history uh, because he is he is the king who founds the dynasty. He is not the first king of the Israelites, uh, but the first one is Saul turns out to be kind of a damp squib and uh, God replaces him with David. And uh, 
David is told by the prophet Nathan that he is going to found a house that is going to endure forever. And the way in which that house is interpreted as enduring forever in Christianity is that uh, David is the ancestor of the Messiah. He's the ancestor of Jesus. And then for Jews also, uh, he David is uh, the ancestor of the Messiah. And when, when Jews pray for the coming of the Messiah, they will talk about Hamashiach ben David, the, the Messiah, the son of David. Um, the, the Messiah is either the... the um, the return of David himself or a descendant of David. And therefore being a descendant of David was important in uh, medieval Jewish history. In uh, Jewish communities in, um, well, the the community in in, uh, exile, the, the, uh, the leader of the community, the exilarch was a descendant of David in, um, in uh, medieval Egypt, where we know a lot about the Jewish community because of the documents from the Cairo Geniza, uh, Arnold Franklin has written a very interesting uh, book about how the descendants of David were understood within that community and how um, largely based on genealogical practices within the Muslim community, the Jewish community started taking genealogy very seriously and uh, looked back at their descent from David. And the, the other reason why David becomes so important in medieval culture is that the, the biggest set of writings that were actually used in prayer and chanted in church in the Middle Ages. The most important part of the Bible liturgically was the Psalms, which is a series of 150 or 151 poems or songs that in Christianity are sung at different points in the liturgical year. Uh, in Judaism also, you know, selected Psalms are chanted at, on selected occasions. And David is believed to have been the author of all the Psalms. I mean, modern biblical scholarship doesn't think so. Right. Uh, but but uh, certainly in medieval belief, they were all attributed to David. And this made, this made David uh, one of the most important authors in the Middle Ages, and it made him a prophet. Uh, mm. So just just like all the other books of the Bible, all, uh, books of prophecy, you know, Isaiah and Jeremiah and so on, uh, Psalms was a book of prophecy, and it was a book of prophecy of David. And to Christians, uh, the Psalms were probably second only to Isaiah in the importance of their prophecy as far as prophesying the coming of Christ. So... Um, one of the modes, one of the modes of Christian biblical interpretation in the Middle Ages, was what's called typological. That is, every everything that happens in uh, what Christians called the Old Testament is a type for the history of salvation that happens in the New Testament. And so, David is a type of Christ, and every you can look at everything that he does in his life 
even the less savory things as being sort of allegorical and meant to be interpreted as prophecy about what Christ is going to do. So that's why uh, David was so important. David is emerging as this figure that you can, he can be what you need him to be. <laughs> right? Absolutely. And when you, when you look at, um, at modern Davids, they are, uh, there's, you know, there's the military hero and you get uh, you know, the military hero who uh, conquers all of Israel and Judea. So David is something of a hero to the right-wing settler movement in Israel, for example. He also is uh, invoked by, uh, he was invoked by, by several, uh, Jer Jerry Falwell Jr., most prominently, but also um, several other uh, leaders of the Christian right in the U.S. to explain why Donald Trump could still be their leader uh, despite his um, sexual activity that didn't conform with what the Christian church is preaching. Uh, he's also, you know, modern David is also invoked, uh, as I mentioned, uh, in same-sex love and marriage by people who want to find a warrant for that in the Bible. You'll also find uh, David invoked just about uh, on every sports page. So when I would give a talk about uh, one of the chapters in the book is on David and Goliath, and uh, I gave a talk on that at several different places, and wherever I was going to give a talk, I would Google um, David and Goliath and the sports pages of their local newspaper because it's a very, very common metaphor. Everyone knows what it is. Even if they don't know the whole story, um, they know that David and Goliath means uh, a, a small but uh, brave fighter with right on his side uh, defeats the much larger and more powerful, but uh, in some way um, morally defective uh, Goliath. Yeah. And of course, the, I mean, the moral defect here is that, you know, the team is from your rival city. Or right. Like they're that. the Yankees. Yeah. They're the New York yeah. Yankees. Right. And right. That's just, yeah. Yeah. It's hard to think of a more persistent um, hero than David. And he and and he's the man in the Middle Ages, right? And through this, I mean, so you uh, the book is laid out very neatly in these. Like you have a chapter dedicated to each of or to uh, some of the most important places where masculinity can be played out uh, according to David's story, right? Um, and the first and probably the most important is his prowess at war, which is the David of you know the David who's who's conquering the David who gives us Israel. Um, what is how how is he interpreted as a military like a, a site of military prowess? Well, the thing, he his defeat of Goliath is really important, and the fact that he does it, you know, Goliath has Goliath is huge. Goliath has a big sword. David has only a slingshot. And in the later Middle Ages, there's there's this. Um, well, it's a literary trope, and it also becomes uh, very popular in visual culture. Um, the nine worthies 
who are nine military heroes, three from the Old Testament, three from uh, pagan times, so Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, um, and then three Christian ones. And so David is one of the Old Testament ones, and they're they're each depicted uh, both with with a shield, their coat of arms, which, of course, None of them actually had a coat of arms, but it's what's attributed to them. Um, and David's coat of arms has a harp on it uh, because that's always his attribute uh, in his, his composing and playing the Psalms. But they're also depicted with their characteristic weapon. And David's is the slingshot. And anytime you see somebody depicted with a slingshot uh in medieval art, it's basically a reference to David. So he he's this, um, he's a young boy. He will challenge this giant in single combat where no one else will. He's offered armor and he refuses it. He has only, he has his slingshot and he has five stones that, that he's picked up and he's going to use those to kill Goliath. Now, does this make him a great warrior? In the original biblical text, it's quite clear that the point is that he is small and weak. Um, It's not that uh, although he is small, he actually has this great prowess. It's that although he is small, he has God on his side. And it's, it's very clear that this is a story about uh, about divine intervention. And I don't think that um, people who put that in their sports pages necessarily are, <laughs> are really thinking about that. Not, not explicitly anyway, but it's still, mm-hmm. that still haunts the story. I mean, people believe that their, their team will win because they have a right on their side. Uh, and, and people do pray you know, for their oh, teams yeah. to win. Yeah. And so uh, <laughs> then, then, yeah, then, then David spends some time as an actual military leader. I mean, what what uh, what endangers his life and causes him to sort of go off uh, and lead his own band rather than remaining in the service of King Saul is that the women are chanting in the streets. Uh, Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. And this makes Saul very concerned that his throne is going to be usurped and and David has to leave. So then David uh, is essentially the head of a mercenary band and uh, sells his military services to various uh, kings in the area uh, other than Saul. But eventually he comes back and and, uh, fights on Saul's side. Once he becomes king over Israel and Judea, he doesn't do very much more fighting. And uh, the Talmud has a very detailed explanation about this, about how David and uh, Joab, or Joab, uh, were complementary, and that David was sort of the wisdom and he was the pious one. He spent his time praying, studying Torah. And uh, Joab led the army. And that one would not have been possible without the other. And at one point, David wants to go out and lead his army. And uh, his Joab and his men say, no, 
you know, we, you're too valuable for that. You know, let, let us go do it. And so David actually, once he becomes king, is not all that much of, uh, of a military leader in terms of being personally on the battlefield with his sword. Uh, but he is, he nevertheless um, is considered a great warrior in, in the sense of generalship, in the sense of like figuring out what needs to be done, making sure he has the followers with which to do it. And for for medieval kings, I mean, medieval kings were uh, under a fair amount of pressure to uh, to actually participate in warfare and to show their own prowess on the battlefield. But what what really probably mattered more than that is their generalship. I mean, if they could get their armies to win, they would have a good reputation regardless of what they themselves are, are doing. So he, he becomes this model kind of general model leader. Um, and then the next place is um, surpassing the love of women, right? When you talk about his, the male friendship, which is an incredibly important bond, the, the strongest of the bonds, right. And really in the whole pre-modern world. Um, Yes, um, although I sort of argue there that it's uh, it's patterned on the marriage bond, which is also you know it, a very important bond theoretically. I mean, in many medieval cultures, uh, the culture is very homosocial. Men are expected to spend time with other men, and it's seen as effeminate to spend too much time with women. Now that, I mean, that's not universal in the Middle Ages. I mean, Middle Ages are... uh, you know, it's a it's a long stretch of time. It's a diverse set of cultures, uh, so I'm not. I don't want to generalize about the whole thing, but there are certainly points in which uh, male friendship is extremely valorized. I argue here that by by the end of the Middle Ages, it's in some ways patterned on marriage. The fact that uh, David is um, Jonathan's brother-in-law is important. And a lot of the the language that's used for David and Jonathan's love is very similar to the language that is used for uh, David's love for Michal, uh, Jonathan's sister and his, um, possibly his first wife. But you also, um, you also find uh, that, well, two things about the male friendship. One is that it is um, hierarchical. We we tend to think of uh, friends as being equal. You know that that uh, the we if we're friends with somebody, we consider that the friendship goes both ways. And it's not if if we have one person who is older and is seen as helping out the younger one, we wouldn't call that a friend. We'd probably call it a mentor. Uh, Whereas uh, medieval friendship is often patterned as are medieval sexual relations, often patterned as an older and uh, 
older, wiser, more powerful person and a younger person. And you get that in male-female sexual relationships. And then you also get it in male-male relationships. And you get it with David and Jonathan, but it's not consistent. You get some stories that tell it with David as the older lover and Jonathan as the beloved. And you get some that make David as the uh, younger beloved and, and Jonathan as lover. So, so, um, so that's quite interesting. And then the other piece of it um, that is especially interesting is the way the different religious cultures bend over backwards to make this relationship not sexual. So, for example, the biblical line, um, your love to me uh, was wonderful, surpassing the love of women. Now, what that can be interpreted in a lot of different ways. That can mean you love me more than women do, or uh, you love me more than you love women. But in the early Middle Ages, in manuscripts of the Vulgate, the Latin Bible, there was a gloss that said, as a mother loves her son, so I have loved you. And so that's a marginal gloss that somebody just writes it writes it in the margin to explain it. But by the 9th or 10th century, uh, this gloss has made its way into the text itself. And all the manuscripts of this Bible that, that we have from the Central and later Middle Ages and uh, the early printed versions of it too, all have this uh, as you know, your love to me was surpassing the love of women as a mother loves her son, her only son, so I have loved you. And that really sanitizes it and de-eroticizes it. I mean, it, it makes it it makes it a a familial love, a love that there is no question this is um, an admirable and and good love. And that line is um, is uh, removed from the 20th century Stuttgart edition of the Vulgate. So, I mean, it's recognized that that is not something that is, was originally there in Jerome's translation, and, and that's an addition. But it was definitely there during the Middle Ages. And there's other, there are other ways also that Christians um, you know, make this friendship safe by allegorizing it. Um, and uh, Jewish culture makes it safe uh, in other ways, and especially by talking about the familial relationship and David as the brother-in-law and so on. But the, 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 um, um, the way interpreters uh, tie themselves in knots to make it seem like David is doing nothing wrong is especially marked in the third chapter, which I guess we're getting to next, so I'll talk about that. We get yep. there. <laughs> in, indeed, you're like you've, you've seen you've seen the plan. Yeah, yeah and I, I'm interested. And this chapter is um is called "I've Sinned Against the Lord: Sex and Penitence," and I think that's an interesting combination um, that you put these the, that it's sex and penitence, which I mean, you it makes perfect sense once you read the chapter. So, can it please explain? Tell us what's going on here. Yeah. So David um, David slept with a lot of women. 
<laughs> and just lay that out there. Yeah, um, he had he had several wives. He had several concubines. They're not all named in the Bible. It's not a hundred percent clear what constituted wife and what constituted concubine. But uh, the the most prominent case, the one that's that's depicted all the time in art and literature is Bathsheba. So Bathsheba was the wife of one of his generals. And while his army is off fighting, and David, of course, doesn't go off to the fighting, he stays home to be pious and pray and so on. And he happens to look out the window and see Bathsheba bathing. And he decides he wants to have sex with her. He has her uh, brought to him and they have sex. And uh Eventually, she gets pregnant. So he recalls her husband from uh, from the battlefield. He says, okay, well, she's got to have sex with her husband. And so the his husband will think that the child is his. So he recalls her husband and asks him, okay, how's the war going? And the, the husband, Uriah, sort of camps outside the city. And David says, no, you should go home to your wife. And the and your eye says, no, I, you know, I can't, I can't go home and enjoy myself with my wife and, and relax while the army's still out there in the field. And David keeps telling him, no, okay, go home to your wife. And, and he refuses. So David has been foiled. So he sends Uriah back uh, with a note to Joab, which says, put Uriah in the vanguard of the battle. So he does, and Uriah is killed. And then um, uh, then David marries uh, Bathsheba. They have, um, they have the child. And the prophet Nathan goes to David and says, what, what would you say if there was uh, a rich man who had 99 ewes and a poor man who just had this one ewe lamb and the rich man, instead of slaughtering one of his own ewes uh, for a feast, took the poor man's one ewe lamb, what, what should be done to this rich man? And David says, oh, he should be put to death. That's really terrible. And Nathan says to him, thou art the man which is where I got the title of the book, but it's also, I mean, yeah, yeah you demand, right. but it's, but this is a, but this is a, a negative thou art the man, you know, you are the guilty one. And then David does all kinds of penance. The child dies. And then once the child is dead and David uh, stops his, Penance, that's when Nathan tells David that you will become the uh, founder of a great nation. Your house will endure forever. And then David and Bathsheba have another son who is Solomon. And that is the line uh, through which uh, the Messiah is descended. So um, the, the David has done a terrible thing here. He's done two terrible things, uh, adultery and murder. So that sort of has to be explained away. And I, I did I did bring in um, some uh, 
Muslim texts in this chapter because it's so interesting how they explain it differently. And I want to give a shout out here to uh, my former PhD student, now Dr. Emma Snowden, uh, who is a very good Arabist and who, um, you know, I read, I read some of these uh, Arabic texts in translation, and then she went back and read them in Arabic and kind of told me where the nuances were and what I was missing by reading them in translation and so on. Um, so Christians sort of explain uh, David's behavior away in two ways. I mean, one is that he's a model of penitence, that sort of he had to... When Christians think sin, they immediately think sex. Mm-hmm. I mean, medieval right. yes. medieval Christians. That that is mm-hmm. possibly true also of modern Christians, but uh, I'm thinking of the medieval ones. Yeah. Uh, so, in order for David to be a model of sin and penitence, he has he has to. Uh, he has to commit sexual sin, but then he does penance for it. And the Psalms, at least some of the Psalms there, the, the seven penitential Psalms are specifically uh, said in their head notes to have been written uh, after uh, David had sinned with Bathsheba or sinned in the death of Uriah. So they're, they're, uh, they are the fruits of his repentance. And all Christians are expected to be penitent. Right, everybody is a sinner, and therefore David is a great model. So that's one reason why it was okay for him to do this, so he could be, you know, a model of penitence. And the female equivalent, of course, is Mary Magdalene, uh, who the Bible just says she was a sinner, and uh, medieval people just assumed that meant she was a prostitute because right. if you're a woman who's a sinner, that's what you're doing. Uh, and she also. Repented and is a is a great model of penitence. Mm-hmm. Well, the, then, yeah, the, the redemption theme is pretty important in yeah, Christianity, yeah. <laughs> like, right? And, yes, and and then the other um, the other way that uh, Christians dealt with this story of um, of David sinning with Bathsheba is allegorical. So, for example. Um, Bathsheba represents the Old Testament who was previously married to the Jews represented by Uriah and then is rightfully claimed by David who represents Christianity and so on. And and the the allegory goes really, really deep. I mean, including um, allegories on the, uh, on the names of each of the characters. And I mean, you could just get chapters and chapters of, of allegory out of this. So that's, um, but you, he's also, um, you, you get, you get Augustine, you get other major Christian writers talking about, uh, don't follow David's example in sinning, but follow his example in penitence. Uh, so then, then you've got, um, in Jewish culture, they, um, they explain this away in some different ways. They'll say, for example, uh, 
and this is um, Tussafot commentators on the Talmud, uh, talk about the the idea of the um, conditional divorce. So uh, the the Talmud tells us that the when uh, men went off to battle, they gave their wives a condition, conditional divorce, saying, "If um, if I I don't return, uh, you are divorced." So that if if somebody doesn't return from battle and is not proven to be dead, you know the wife is able to remarry. And so they interpret this to say that Uriah had actually divorced Bathsheba before he went off to battle. Uh, and therefore, it was okay for David to have sex with her. It wasn't adultery. So adultery is only having sex with somebody else's wife. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that David himself is married. That's not, you know, objectionable for a man, especially for a king. It's only having sex with somebody else's wife. So they say, right, um, uh, Uriah was not actually married to Bathsheba, so it was okay. Well, then the question arises. But it talks about David as a sinner. If he wasn't sinning in having sex with Bathsheba, what was his sin? And well, his sin was the killing of Uriah, but it wasn't really a sin because Uriah disobeyed him when he said, go home to your wife. And Uriah didn't. Uriah was disobeying him, so he deserved to die. And David's sin was not in killing Uriah. It was in killing him extrajudicially. So he should have brought him to trial. Uh, so that is still a sin because the Bible says David's sin, but it's a lesser sin. And then they, they also pick up on um, Uriah died by the sword of the Ammonites. That's the group he was fighting against. And they say, well, that that's also David's sin. David should have just killed him, but having him um, die by the sword of the Ammonites is, you know, the Ammonites worship a snake god and there was a snake on that sword. So to have him killed by the Ammonites is idolatry. And that was the sin. So they, they, they sort of tie themselves in knots. All medieval interpreters you know, tie themselves in knots in order to, uh, to explain things in a way that makes the Bible not contradictory and that makes the positive figures in the Bible you know, stay positive. In, um, in Islam, uh, the uh, interpreters, and, and it's the, the genre that, that I've looked at for this is um, histories of the prophets. So David is one of the prophets. Uh, they say that uh, Uriah and Bathsheba were not married uh, at the time that David had sex with her, that they didn't, that David actually waited to have sex with her until Uriah was dead. So Bathsheba was a widow. And as for him having Uriah put to death, David goes to Uriah's tomb and apologizes to him for having him put to death. And Uriah says, yeah, you know what? It was a battle. Uh, people die in battle. I died in battle. It's not your fault. And David is forgiven and therefore is, you know, is not to be considered a sinner. There's a whole debate um, in among medieval Islamic interpreters whether prophets can ever sin. And so... 
there were some who wanted to explain that David had actually, you know, not sinned at all. So yeah, they, they, um, they, they all want to present David as a model. Uh, so they explain away his sin to some extent, but it's, it's within Christianity that the penitence aspect becomes really important and that uh, sexual sin for a man, sometimes for a woman, but is, uh, is all right if it gives you, you know, occasion to properly repent. Right. Yeah. And, and the rectification of this problem in all these traditions we see David being rewarded when he does have sex in the proper way in, you know, within the boundaries of marriage as you're meant to. Right? And then he gets Solomon and then he gets the dynasty. Yes. So, Al- although he does, um, his other children uh, run into some problems. I mean, he's not actually a very successful father. I mean, for somebody who is, who is uh, a tremendously successful ancestor, he's not a very mm-hmm. successful father. <laughs> Yeah, fair enough. Um, and then what's with the, what's about what's with the harp? <laughs> yeah, David and his harp. So the harp is David's attribute because he uh, because he wrote the psalms. Now, of course, the harp or lyre. I mean, there's um, there's a huge amount that's been written about what actually is the instrument that David is using in and. What does it um, What does it tell us about uh, medieval musicology? Because there, uh, there, there aren't as many depictions as musicologists would like of people actually performing during the Middle Ages, and a pretty good percentage of them are David and his musicians. But uh, that's not an aspect that I, you know what instrument it is that he's playing is not something that I really um, looked into, but. Uh, David and his instrument. Uh, what I talk about in this chapter is sort of the distinction between being a performer of music and a composer of music. And David is both. And one reason why we have so many pictures of David playing the harp in the Middle Ages, if you had an illuminated manuscript, it very often had an author page, picture of the person who wrote it. Uh, not not the scribe, not the person who copied it, but the person who wrote the text. So um, people are probably familiar with uh, illuminated gospel manuscripts that they have pictures of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, either at the beginning of the, the respective gospels, or they'll have one page with all four of the evangelists or their symbols uh, at the beginning of the gospels. Okay, so there's an author page at the beginning of the Psalms, and it has, uh, and it depicts uh, David usually performing because that's a more. Sometimes you get David actually writing the Psalms. I mean, you'll see it'll be a double image, and it'll have one will be him with a pen or him dictating to someone with a pen, and then the other one will be the harp, him performing the Psalms. And uh, so what I argue in this chapter is that the the performing music becomes an attribute of noble masculinity late in the Middle Ages, but the idea of, of uh, composition, the idea of writing something is associated with men. This is not to say that only men 
write important texts. Women do too. But uh, it is particularly considered a masculine attribute and the, the all-around perfect man composes and he composes uh, in, in praise of God. The other, the other place where you see him with his harp is in the letter B. The first, the first psalm starts with the word beatus or blessed. And B is a really nice letter to decorate because it has these two nice big, there is a technical artist, bows they're called. I, I, I wrote the B has the two bumps and somebody corrected me <laughs> and said uh, the, the two bows. So very often that's where you get the author portrait. David is um, in one of those bees playing the harp and in one of the bows. And then the other bow will be something else from David's life or it'll be Christ because David is a prefiguration of Christ. And in, in Hebrew books, you get, um, I mean, the, the, the beginning of the Psalms is a Aleph for Ashrei, and that is often illuminated also. Sure. Okay. So we've got David. Um, so let's, let's see. We've got David, who is, um, he's the instrument of God and a great warrior. He has um, a, a very close relationship with friends, demonstrating the importance of being a, a good and proper friend. He is a married man, and he is a composer. And uh, and the other piece of David's like, great story is the dynasty, right? And that's his last. That's his last bit. His life, and then his afterlife. Yeah, and as I said, he's he's a he's not a very good father. His uh, his children kill each other. His you know his oldest son makes war against him. I mean the. Absalom rebelling against David is a really common reference for medieval kings whose oldest sons uh, not infrequently rebelled against them. But in the longer term, uh, David is successful as a patriarch because he does found a dynasty. And this is really important for uh, medieval Christians. And the tree of Jesse with the ancestry of Christ through Jesse, David's grandfather, uh, become or David's father, sorry, uh, becomes um, becomes very important from the 12th century on uh, in medieval art. And what's really interesting about this is that David, of course, is not the ancestor of Christ in the male line, because. The, the genealogy given in uh, Matthew and Luke, it's the genealogy of Joseph, but uh, Jesus is not the son of Joseph. And so this, of course, also has to be explained. And it's explained because Mary was related to Joseph. So it gives the genealogy of Joseph and then says, yeah, well, this is also the genealogy of Mary because she's related to him. Uh, and then Jerome says, uh, it was not the custom of the Hebrews to give women's genealogies, but we can understand this as being the genealogy of, of Mary. Uh, when you get the tree of Jesse, you have... Uh, Mary is is often depicted in it. And what's really interesting about this, I think, is when you when you the the not the first 
uses of the tree of Jesse, but the ones where it becomes really famous are stained glass at Chartres and Saint-Denis. And this is at a time when the Capetians are you know, stressing their uh, rightful claim to the French throne, which of course their descent from the Carolingians is through a female line. And so it's uh, it makes it the descent of Jesus from David through the female line is kind of handy. Sure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that makes perfect sense. Oh, wow. What a useful figure, this David. <laughs> Apparently, like even Capetian kings can use David uh, yeah, as the model. He's all over the place. Uh, which is why he's such a great uh, topic for this book. What a great locus for this study. Um, okay, so are you done with him? Are you writing the David and Jonathan book? What's next for you? Uh, I thought about looking at Solomon uh, because he's quite interesting. But then I think I've, I've um, I'm done with this for a while. Uh, so I am I'm actually going back to. I worked on masculinity and then I worked on marriage and then I worked on masculinity again, but I'm going back to working on marriage. And mm-hmm. I, the one thing with this book that I've missed is I've missed those court records. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and I, in my book, common women, and then also in boys to men, what, um, what I really liked about those projects well, I guess on marriage is also the way I was able to combine the sort of normative aspects uh, of what what medieval people thought, how they depicted these issues, with uh, documents of practice. And so I'm I'm going back to something where I can look more at. Uh, at what medieval people actually did, as well as the way they set their horizons of expectation. Wonderful. Oh, that'll be fun. Yeah, that's great. That's good work. Excellent. Well, I've taken up more than enough of your time. uh, And I just want to thank you again for meeting with me to talk about this book. Uh, The book, listeners, once again, is Thou Art the Man, The Masculinity of David in the Christian and Jewish Middle Ages. Uh, and you can link to it from our website, Found Bookshop. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks, Yana. Bye-bye. Bye.